Talking Tesla. Talking Tesla. Tesla. I'm not sure if like my foot should be on the brake or the accelerator. They put rings on Elon. It must be some sort of geometrical algorithm. I don't really need to touch the steering wheel there, Tom. Oh, I'm sure there's some math. So SpaceX, <laughs> here's the deal. Um, landing a rocket on a drone ship is key. Charger, 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 <laughs> charger. How am I expected to drive a car without autopilot? Safely. Charger, charger, charger. <laughs> you know, I'm not a good parker, Tom. Yeah. I'll be the first to admit it. Yeah. I just think that this is a car company that is run by super geeks. Yeah. All the other cars are going to be stupid cars compared to this car. You don't even have to I remember that. You've got a Model X. I have seen the future, and it is light pole charging. No, I wouldn't call it a screw-up. Do you like your Model X? God, it's beautiful. <laughs> Now that the election is pretty much over and the new administration will be taking over, it'd be nice to look at what changes could affect the space program and maybe how they even affect our favorite rocket companies. So we've asked, and he's graciously accepted, Eric Berger to come on Talking Tesla. Eric is a senior space editor at Ars Technica, covering everything from astronomy to private space and even wonky uh, NASA policies. Eric has an astronomy degree and a journalism degree. He's also a certified meteorologist uh, and founded Space City Weather uh, and lives in the Houston area. Eric also is an author of an upcoming book called Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days That Launched SpaceX. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much, Joel. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is exciting. Was it last week, week before, we picked your book for a, uh, we do like a media uh, media picks, uh, and you were nice enough to uh, uh, to speak a little bit about your book that's coming out um, in the beginning of March, right? Yeah, March second. So actually, three months from today. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, that's 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 definitely exciting, and we will talk about that. One thing I want to ask you about with the new administration coming, and some of the changes that we might see. I mean, it could also be with Congress and whatnot, but we know, for example, the NASA administrators can be leaving for sure. Yeah, Jim Bridenstine has been the NASA administrator for almost three years. He was actually, I'm pretty sure, was going to leave whether Trump won or Biden won. For some political reasons, I think he was on his way out for a second Trump administration, and he certainly is going to be gone under the Biden administration. He's already said so himself. So yeah, Jim has been good. He's He's been the first administrator, I would say, who has really wholeheartedly embraced commercial space. And the idea that, you know, where private companies are doing things faster, better, and cheaper, NASA ought to just sort of pay them to do those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was the first administrator, or one of the first anyway, that I really got excited about space through the administration, um, you know, through the administrator. So was it Bob, was there a Golden or something? Dan Dan Golden, yeah. Um, So Long ago. Yeah, that was, I think he um, had talked about potentially like... um, a meteorite to hit the Earth and potentially could have been from NASA, I think. I mean, I'm sorry, from from Mars. And that was sort of exciting. But besides that, there's many things that NASA's done that exciting. But I think that um, this the current um, administrator really got people really excited about space. You know, and um, whether whatever your political allegiance is, if you love space, I think um, it'll be sad to see this this administrator go for sure. Yeah, pretty much everyone in the space community appreciates the challenges that Jim faced and the fact that he kept politics largely out of NASA during what was a hyper-political time, hyper-partisan time mm-hmm. in this country. 
Um, he really shielded NASA from that, which was impressive considering his background as a very conservative legislator from Oklahoma. You know, he really stepped up and, and protected NASA, I think. Yeah. So how does how do you think programs like Artemis will be affected? Are there any indications, uh, maybe reading policies and things like that, that we might see changes to that through the Biden administration? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and the answer is, is no one's really sure right now. Um, for sure, the 2024 deadline that, that Bridenstine had taken from Vice President Mike Pence to put humans back on the moon, by that time, that deadline is, is going to be long gone. Um, I don't know whether they'll change it to 2026, 2028, or just sort of say later in the 2020s. My sense is that they'll keep sort of keep a plan that, that sort of has the moon in the near-term future and, and looking out to Mars in the 2030s, but I don't think that, that decision's been made um, they're still sort of in gathering the mode of gathering information. And, and obviously, with all the other problems that this country faces, both domestically and internationally, space is fairly far down the list when you get to sort of addressing these issues. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. We, we definitely want to see the country do well and get through this, this COVID crisis for sure. Um, but, you know, space is, you know, there's definitely allocated dollars out there, too, and it's interesting to see how that could be affected. In the- and, and that's one challenge that the Biden administration is going to face. You know, they are going to be pro-commercial space. I'm pretty confident in that. But NASA, at least in terms of human exploration, spends the vast majority of its funds on the Space Launch System, Orion spacecraft, and ground systems programs. And these programs are woefully inefficient compared to the likes of what SpaceX does. However, it's difficult for me to see the Biden administration wanting to come in and slash those programs and take away thousands of jobs. So I suspect we'll kind of see this balancing act continue where NASA, you know, continues funding these sort of lumbering exploration architecture, the the big rocket, the spacecraft, and maybe they deliver, maybe they don't, while also finding ways to give money to SpaceX and to some of the other commercial companies that are doing you know, more innovative things faster um, and, and, and obviously for less money. Mm-hmm. Were there any senators or Congress, influential Congress folks in the space community uh, or like, you know, in space committees or whatnot that were affected, uh, maybe not, uh, not um, reelected or? You know, the chair of the, the chair of the House subcommittee over NASA, not the budget, but sort of the the authorizing committee, Kendra Horn from Oklahoma, she lost her re-election. She was a freshman Democrat. She had made some waves, actually, because she she was pushing back on commercial space. She wanted to see NASA continue issuing these large cost-plus contracts and own these systems, and especially with the human landing system. Um, she lost her election, so she won't be back, and I'm not sure there was all that much traction. You know, really, when it comes to NASA and especially human exploration, there is one person in Congress who matters far above all the others, that's Alabama Senator Richard Shelby. And he matters for two reasons. One, he's the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Mm-hmm. So everyone who wants to get their pet projects funded in the Senate has to go through Shelby's office. And Shelby's from Alabama, and his priority is directing dollars to Alabama. And he's been extraordinarily successful at that. And among those programs that he values is the Space Launch System rocket, which is you know being done at Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama. So the fact that the Senate probably will remain Republican obviously depends on what happens in the two Georgia Senate seats. You know, if the Senate, if if the Republicans hold the Senate, Shelby will retain that committee chair and have the outsized voice in policy in Congress. Right. Okay. 
And it looks also like um, he has a re-election coming in two years, I guess that would be. That's correct. He's up for re-election in 2022. He's in his mid-80s. I'm sorry, I don't have his exact age in front of me. No, no, that's fine. Because there's questions about whether he's going to come back. So my my latest information on that is, number one, he had not been raising funds for re-election, which was a sign that maybe he wasn't going to run. However, he does have a lot of money in the bank. And what I'm told is that he probably is going to run again. Okay. So Shelby would continue to remain, you know, extraordinarily influential in space policy. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the two Georgia seats, right? Because then that I think that just makes it tied, but then the vice president breaks the tie. Kamala Harris would break the tie, yeah. Okay. So that, that'll be interesting to see, but, um, you know, barring any big changes, it's Shelby if, is... If, if, the Senate, if the Senate did go Democratic it would be much easier for the Biden administration to make major space policy changes. I don't think there's any question about that. The question I would have is, do they want to expend their capital in the next two years doing that when there are so many other things to do? And and I'm thinking perhaps they, they will not. Yeah, and potentially, I mean, it, I feel like he would, for some of the things that there's not a strong will for, I think he probably ends up doing much of what, they did in the Obama administration or maybe even sort of keeping things as they are, um, even, you know, what, what was happening under Trump? I think they're going to want to find a way to differentiate their space policy from that which Trump did. And that may be as simple as saying we're not going to rush back to the moon, you know, by 2024. We're going to do it in a sustained, you know, more reasonable, achievable way um, for, you know, within our existing budgets. That may be the way, or they may they may make a much more dramatic change and say, you know, we just don't think the moon is worth it and we want to, you know, plan to go straight to Mars. That was the Obama space policy. And frankly, the journey to Mars that they talked about really was ephemeral. It was never really a real program. So hopefully that doesn't happen. Okay. So I heard you talking about what inspired you to write your book on SpaceX. And myself and one of the other co-hosts were in Florida to see the first Falcon Heavy launch. And uh, we definitely, I've never seen one before, you know, in my 40s and never saw never saw a rocket launch, although I had relatives in, in the area. I don't know why I never ended up seeing one, but it was just absolutely amazing. And, you know, maybe, maybe Elon had us going by, geez, it might blow up or something, but that was pretty exciting period in uh, SpaceX's history. Yeah. So Elon Elon has learned his lesson when it comes to setting expectations. Um, back before the very first Falcon One launch, um, he did an interview with a with a reporter, and and told her that there was a ninety percent chance that they were going to make it to orbit with that first flight. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so you know, I asked him. I asked him about that about a year ago, and I said, "Hey, you know what was." What were you thinking, basically? And he said, well, yeah, it was more like a 0% chance. But but he has learned that lesson, and so he, he knows to temper expectations. So the day of the Falcon Heavy launch, he came out to meet with he, – he did one-on-ones with a handful of reporters, and I was one of them out there on the, on the pad. And, uh, and so I asked him at the time what his expectations were, and he said it was – he thought it was a 50-50 chance that they would, they would make it over. He said that basically the number one goal was not to damage – um, launch complex 39a where they were also doing the human spaceflight stuff and and well, that was a classic case of of 
setting expectations low because we all saw that the rocket took off. Um, it, it performed magnificently. The two first stages came back. The center stage, they had a T-TEB issue with relighting the center core, and so it missed the, it missed the ocean um, drone ship. Um, but, but, you know, amazingly too, like the second stage, they did this much delayed burn to, to show the military that they could, you know, that the, that the upper stage could, could do multiple burns over hours that that's important in the military to get to some, you know, some payloads in the geostationary Mm -hmm. um, orbit. So, uh, it was a phenomenal success. And, and, you know, as I watched that rocket take off, it was every bit as impressive for me as watching a space shuttle launch, um, which was this, you know, which obviously was a huge vehicle. And I just sort of realized after that, that, you know, if this private company can build the world's most powerful rocket, you know, for less than a billion dollars while doing all these other things at breakneck speed, you know, it, it just sort of washed away some of the lingering doubts I'd had over the last decade about SpaceX. And, and I just realized that, you know, for me, I'm 47. This was clearly the transformational space company of, of my lifetime. And so I had always been interested in SpaceX, but I decided to get really interested in them. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to really write uh, the story that most people don't know about and the, about some of the people that you most people don't most know about. Yeah. Um, you know, Ashley Vance's biography, Elon, is obviously a really great book. Um, I think it does a fantastic job of, of really getting into, into his character. Um, and so we really understand who he is and where he's coming from. Um, and that's, that's so true. I mean, it, it reads very well. I wanted to understand sort of Elon more deeply on space, but I also want to understand how he built the team that allowed him to be successful. And, and what I found is that, you know, his DNA is all over that company and it starts with the original goal and the funding, but man, you know, he, one of his, one of the things he does really well is hiring people. His, his HR manager, an engineer named Brian Beldy told me that Elon hired personally the first 3000 employees of SpaceX um, and, and made the time to do that because, you know, he wanted to get the best people and he did find the best people. All the early positions, the, the propulsion guy, Tom Muller, um, the structures guy, Chris Thompson, uh, Hans Koenigsman, who was over avionics, and then Tim Buzz, the launch director. I mean, they were all just, you know, they just worked their butts off to help him achieve that vision. Um, and of course, Gwen Shotwell, who did all the business stuff, the business development, um, she was so instrumental in getting those early contracts from NASA that were really a springboard for, for SpaceX. Yeah, Gwen is probably, um, especially for Tesla fans, Gwen's sort of that um, yeah. operational person that they'd love to see uh, in, in Tesla. Um, because as you, as you sort of said, you know, um, Elon learned his lesson really well, at least on the SpaceX side, of not overpromising, and he's starting to learn that now on the Tesla side for over overpromising too. And it would be nice to see that operational person, though, for sure, like Gwen. Yeah, I can I can see that, I, and I think I think he got lucky with 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 finding her because in a lot of ways she's everything he's not. She's much more tactful. She's very good at talking to all kinds of different audiences, but. You know, as I write in the book, on the other hand, they're like simpatico. Like, you know, Elon is out there very brash, very bold, and she's every bit as brash and bold as he is. Like, she shares his vision, and she wants to go out there and crush, you know, crush crush everything. Um, and she just kind of does it in a velvet glove. 
Whereas, mm. you know, he's out there sort of <laughs> saying whatever on his mind. That's cool. Who Who is the most interesting personality at SpaceX other than the number one and number two there? You know, the guy who I really came to just think was was a was an integral part of the story was was a, was a guy named Zach Dunn who was at SpaceX from 2007 through last year and he was a guy who was an undergraduate student at Duke University who was like watching some of the early stuff SpaceX was doing before they launched and then he watched the first launch attempt in March 2006 from his dorm room in Stanford oh, um, wow. and then and said, man, that's exactly what I want to do. And he you know, had this phone call with Tom Muller to become an intern. So he was an intern in the summer of 2006. He got hired on. And, and what I liked about his story is like he felt like he had missed the boat because he hadn't been there for the first four years of the company, but ended up being sort of at the company at the most pivotal moments when it mattered. Like mm-hmm. he was a responsible engineer for the first stage propulsion on flights three and four of the Falcon 1. Um, and he was the guy when push came to shove, um, when they were flying the Falcon one first stage out to quad for the fourth flight. Um, and, and Ashley talks a little bit about this in his biography, but there's a whole chapter about this, this, um, eight week period between flight three and four in, in my book where they, 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 they have no choice but to fly it out there instead of sending it by ship because they have no money. They have no time. They have to fly. Is that where they, um, where they noticed like a weird expansion happening on the airplane? Well, they did, the more airplane? Than, they did more than notice it because about 20 of the engineers were riding along the C-17 with like the Falcon 9 first stage right there. And like they had their feet kicked up on the cradle. I have, a great, I have a great picture of it in the book. And it starts popping, pop, oh. pop, like super loud. And oh, the first instinct of the Air Force pilots was to jettison it because they figured that maybe it was going to implode and, and kill everyone in the loading bay. Um, and, but, but anyway, anyway, they sort of figured out what was happening. Um, and, and Zach Dunn was the guy who at, you know, 30,000 feet climbs inside the rocket as it's imploding to open a valve to basically save the day. Oh my God. That's yeah. So, so he's, he's an incredible character who kind of really embodied the spirit of SpaceX. Um, someone else I liked a lot was, was Tim Buzza, who was the launch director at, at Vandenberg when they did the static fire in 2005 and then the launch director at Quadge and then later on was the launch director for the first first handful of Falcon 9 flights at, at Cape Canaveral. Um, but he, he had kept very detailed notes and a timeline and, man, had a great memory. So he was just a, he was a fantastic resource. So there's about, there's about 10 or 12 people who I, I tell the story through their eyes. Elon is one, of course. He's throughout the book. But it's sort of also bringing forward the stories of these other people who made these just key contributions to making a success. And, and man, they were so close to failure on a number of occasions. So um, a lot of Tesla fans know uh, that there were a couple times in, in Tesla's history where the company was days, weeks from failing, essentially, you know, especially the most recently with the Model 3. Did SpaceX have a Model 3 moment um, where the company was really on the line and may not have made it uh, you know, yeah. a couple months later? There were two moments, and I think one of them definitely overlaps with, with Tesla, actually, that they both do. In 2006, they certainly weren't on the precipice of failure, but 
they got a contract from NASA for development of a cargo spacecraft, the, the first crew, the first cargo dragon. That really was critical money that allowed them to expand and ultimately become successful with the Falcon One, I think. But there are two there are two failure points where one was the Flight Four of the Falcon One. So this was in September of two thousand and eight. If that rocket had not made it to orbit, they were toast because um, their confidence in them would have expired. And then just months later, this was the same, like within days, like within hours of when Tesla closed that critical funding round, I think at the end of 2008. Yep. Um, so SpaceX, three days before Christmas on 2008, got their operational contract to deliver cargo to the International Space Station. And that was more than a billion dollars. And if that contract had not come through, they were most definitely toast as well. Um, like Gwen told me that, you know, she was looking out and they had like, they didn't have payroll for like another week or two and, and then they were going to have to stop paying people. Oh, geez. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's pretty darn close then. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like those moments help forge a company in some ways and help, help uh, focus them on what's important. And uh, you, you see a lot of companies that were, founded or forged definitely um during big recessions um and they they end up doing pretty well like like ibm i think is one of them um but over over time these things sort of happen and tesla has gone through that for sure and spacex has gone through that for sure i think that's why a lot of the people i talked to were so eager to talk about kind of this this period, um, especially the, the, the time on Kwajalein Island. Um, so this is, you know, this is you fly to Hawaii from California, and then you fly the same distance again, and then you reach this small atoll of islands, and that's where they ended up launching from for a complicated series of reasons. Um, but being out there so far away from everything and having to just MacGyver things, you know, having so many failures, um, but sort of just you know, working so hard to, to achieve that success with the Flight 4, that is the crucible in which sort of the SpaceX that we know today formed. Um, just the going hell for leather, you know, iterating, finding whatever solutions were to hand and, and implementing them as fast as possible. Like the same stuff that they're doing now in Boca Chica with Starship, like it's, it's the same thing. It's the same DNA that was there in 2006, 7, and 8 um, on Kwajalein. It's just more people, more money, and, and on a much bigger scale. So, like, they wanted that story to be known because that was where sort of the company came together and became SpaceX as we know it today. Hmm. So, um, with Starship, we, Starship's coming up. Uh, Friday. Maybe yeah, Friday. Okay. Is it Friday? Okay. So, it'll be exciting. What do you think about the um, the Earth hops uh, and you know that idea of using rockets to get quickly to other places on Earth? Well, I'll be honest with you, Joel. I think that's a long ways away. Um, this so-called point-to-point suborbital um, travel. You know, maybe for cargo, we might be seeing something like that in the next ten years. Mm -hmm. um, because I know the military would be interested in that capability. I mean, if you could, if you could put. You know, 50 tons or 100 tons of cargo loaded onto a starship and get it, you know, halfway around the world, you know. In 30 minutes? That was something since since 9-11 that the U.S. military has been intensely interested in. And so I think there's some value there. Boy, to get to the safety, though, of point-to-point of point for, for people travel, 
you know, within five to 10 years, we're going to have some supersonic airlines come back online. So you should be able to get to, from LA to Tokyo in like four hours, maybe something like that, four or five hours. And so, you know, a rocket launch that gets you there in an hour versus four hours, it's just, I don't see the value other than like if I could go buy a ticket for $10,000 to go from Houston to Singapore and, and do so on a rocket ship, I mean, <laughs> sign me up, right? I mean, that what a hell of an experience. I, it just, I, don't see, I don't see sort of that becoming a real consumer, consumer deal. Uh, but, you know, and if it does, I, I suspect it's, it's a long ways off. Well, you know, when I hear Elon talk about it, it's, it gets me really excited and it's definitely cool and we talk about it a lot. But when I hear Gwen sort of say, hey, I'd, I'd love to be able to meet a client in, uh, in the UAE and, uh, and then fly back the same night, that would be, you know, game changing. Now, obviously, that's pretty far off, but. That would be game changing, but, you know, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to get to Florida or to Texas you're going to have to take a 30 minute boat ride offshore, you know, you're right. going to have So you're going to lose some time for sure. You're going to lose quite a bit of time. I it's 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 difficult for me to see it, it becoming practical, but, you know, I mean, I, I mean I, I thought I heard Bezos talking about doing package deliveries um with blue with Blue Origins um rocket or potentially anyway. And if that's the case, then I think that'll give Elon enough motivation to want to continue on that path too. Well, I mean, look, if Elon he doesn't need motivation, anyway, he doesn't need but, motivation. No, that's, no he, he does not but, like motivation. Uh, if, and if he thinks there's a market there, like, you know, with Starlink, he's just going to build it. And then he believes the market will materialize. So if he's set on building and, and I think really he's looking just for other, other things for Starship to do. Um, so if you have so many of them and you need to make a lot I think that that makes sense too, right? Um, so, so would you ever fly on one um, if, uh, let's say, it had, you know, a number of years under its belt as a package delivery and maybe three hundred flights uh, flying humans? Would you be on that three hundred first flight? Oh, definitely. I mean, I mean, you know, my goal is to have enough money when I retire to take some kind of space tourism adventure, whether it's on New Shepard. Um, mm-hmm. or, you know, in some kind of balloon that goes up to 30 kilometers. Um, but, but if there's a starship that, that will take me to Australia or maybe around the moon, you know, that would be, that would be amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I thought maybe I should have made the number lower, like 101 or something. <laughs> that's right. I'd be, I'd be on the, I'd be on the 10th one. I mean, come on. Okay. You know? Wow, that's great. Because let's face it, I mean, the, 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 look how many Falcon 9 launches there were before, you know, Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley got on, on in, crew, in Cargo Dragon, Crew Dragon. I mean, there were almost 100 launches. Right. So the, the Starship Cargo is going to launch many, many times before we see people on that vehicle, in my opinion. Oh, I, I agree. I definitely agree because, I mean, it's going to, there's so many uh, international agencies that you'd have to convince to, yes. to allow for that too, or each new location you went to, you'd have to convince them. Um, which, so the one last question about SpaceX, and it kind of relates to Tesla too, is Tesla starting to expand around the world. And one of the th- things that you hear Elon saying and and other executives saying is, "Hey, we need more engineers." And so when they move to China, they're getting more 
engineers in China and then in, in Germany now they're, they're looking for top engineers in, in Germany. And I, I suspect as they move on to other countries, they're going to do the same. And one of Elon's cries overall for engineering is needing more engineers. And I'm guessing at some point, SpaceX may need more engineers. Do you ever see a time when SpaceX could have employees that are not in the United States, like maybe through a agreement with ESA, the European Space Agency, as a start, for example, or 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 no, that that would never happen. It's difficult for me to see it happening right away because of the ITAR restrictions. Um, there's a lot of stuff involving rockets and propulsion that you know you're not allowed to export, and so you have to be a U.S. citizen to work on that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very difficult for a foreign engineer to come to the United States and get a job at a SpaceX or, or any other rocket company because of those because of those restrictions. So maybe that could change in the future, or maybe SpaceX is allowed to license its technology. The fact of the matter is that there's a certain breed of driven engineer who wants the challenge of working at a place like SpaceX. So, you know, they, I don't think they're ever going to really have a challenge of, of finding great people. And there's plenty of great U.S. engineers. But I think the industry as a whole probably, you know, needs help. But what I'm trying to say is like, like the best people, a lot of them are going to want the challenge of trying to build a rocket that's going to go to Mars, right? That's just, that's just, that appeals to them. That's why, that's why the early people, you know, that, that signed up with him, they, they liked the fact that, that by coming to SpaceX, you know, you weren't going to sit in an office all day or push paper, or do designs, you know, you were going to get, you were going to get out there and work on the rocket. You were going to get your hands on the hardware, and it's still the same way today. So you think, ultimately, their influence could even just be motivating other countries to do the same, same thing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting, in Europe right now, it's, the European launch industry is kind of where the United States was about 15 years ago, where there were no SpaceX's, there was just kind of United Launch Alliance, which was Boeing and Lockheed Martin coming together. You know, there's the European launch industry is basically one company, Ariane Space, that does the Ariane 5, does the European version of Soyuz and then the Vega rocket. But now there are some smaller launch companies that are coming up trying to disrupt it. There's three in Germany, in fact, they're pretty interesting. And so I think their influence, as you say, sort of is maybe not to get those engineers to come to the United States, but maybe to look around and say, hey, the institutional rocket conglomerates are ripe for disruption. And if SpaceX could do it there, we should try to do it here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in part, I was thinking maybe there could even be SpaceX subsidiaries or offices in other in like in europe especially um i i could see it but i guess it has to change with itar and that's really the that's really what's which and i mean you're in spacex spacex's primary business now is launch so europe european space agency is not going to want to bring them in because spacex has really disrupted Ariane space's business model because you know 15 20 years ago a lot of the geostationary satellites, commercial, you know, the direct TV stuff and so forth was going up on Ariane 5s, Ariane 4s. And, and now they're really struggling to get commercial business. Now, what you might see is Starlink offices popping up in Europe and places because, you know, I am 
far from a Starlink expert, but it is a regulatory nightmare to try to get permission in 200 countries around the world to, to sell your services. And you need lawyers in each country. You need lawyers, and, you're, and, and some of those countries are going to want footprints, and they're going to want offices where they can, you can hire local people. And so that's probably where it would happen, in my opinion. Do you see any changes in, um, I guess it's, it's a combination of a bunch of agencies, right, that approve Starlink satellites? The FCC has some control. I, I guess they just get permission for launches with FAA and others, the Commerce Department, right? So the, the, the National Space Council under the Trump administration was kind of looking at all of this and has made some recommendations. But the way it works now is the FAA licenses the launch. And then if you want to come back and sell Starlink Internet service in the United States, you need to convince your the FCC that, that you're selling a competitive service and, and they license out the spectrum that you can use for that service. Um, so that's basically the way it works. But probably business as usual, even with the Biden administration. Um, I suspect, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of big issues um, in space that are, that are, you know, you'd like to have a more sort of coherent approach to um, the, the spectrum licensing is one. And I think the debris issue is another major issue because there's no central agency right now that, that sort of regulates all the stuff that's being put up there. It's basically the FCC and the federal communications commission. Why are they, why are they responsible for space debris? Um, right. It's because you have to, you have to convince them that your satellite constellation is safe as part of your application to sell your service in the United States. Um, and, and that's really kind of a backward. So I think, I think eventually we're going to get some kind of space debris agency or office in you know, the, the FAA or you know, DOD or NASA or somewhere that will address that. And, and you'd like to see that happen sooner rather than later because you know, it is going to be a serious issue going forward for SpaceX and for launch company, other launch companies and for everyone who does business in space. You know, I forgot the Space Force too, right? Because that's super new and it. I don't know. I guess you start something like that with the backing of influential members in the Senate and in Congress. Do you see that continuing? I don't know, like what what it looked like on the Dem side. You know, before before President Trump, there was generally bipartisan agreement that moving towards some kind of separate military branch for space. You know, whether it remained in the Air Force for a time to come or not, you know, there was a recognition that these were serious issues that they that they were going to have to be dealt with, and and Trump kind of politicized it. So I think there might be kind of a reaction among some to get rid of Space Force. Um, but I think there's enough support for it in Congress that that this is probably not something the Biden administration is going to want to expend a lot of energy undoing. They'd rather sort of deal with climate change and COVID and things like that. I could be entirely wrong, but I have not heard of any sort of you know pent up demand to to undo Space Force. Great. Well, he is Eric Berger. His book is Liftoff: Elon Musk in the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX. Uh, and you can find that anywhere fine books are sold. I guess that's what they say. Thanks, Eric, for, for joining us today on Talking Tesla and Talking SpaceX. My pleasure, Joel. Nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you.